hiking the trail with high hopes and new boots, and comes stumbling back two days later with a bobcat attached to his head, or dripping blood from an armless sleeve and whispering "bear" in a hoarse voice before sinking into a troubled unconsciousness. The woods were full of peril: rattlesnakes and water moccasins, and nests of copperheads, bobcats, bears, coyotes, wolves, and wild boar. Loony hillbillies, destabilized by gross quantities of impure corn liquor and generations of profoundly unbiblical sex, rabies-crazed skunks, raccoons and squirrels, merciless fire ants and ravening black fly, poison ivy, poison sumac, poison salamanders, even a scattering of moose, lethally deranged by a parasitic worm that burrows a nest in their brains. And befuddles them into chasing hapless hikers through remote sunny meadows and into glacial lakes. Literally unimaginable things could happen to you out there. I heard of a man who had stepped from his tent for a midnight pee, and was swooped upon by a short-sighted hoot owl. The last he saw of his scalp, it was dangling from talons prettily silhouetted against a harvest moon. And of a young woman who was woken by a sinuous tickle across her belly, and peeked into her sleeping bag to find a copperhead bunking down in the warmth between her legs. I heard four separate stories, always related with a chuckle, of campers and bears sharing tents for a few confused and lively moments, of people abruptly vaporized, twarn't nothing left of 'em but a scorch mark, by body-sized bolts of lightning. When caught in sudden storms on high ridge lines, of tents crushed beneath falling trees, or eased off precipices on ball bearings of beaded rain and sent paragliding onto distant valley floors, or swept away by the watery wall of a flash flood, of hikers beyond counting, whose last experience was trembling earth and the befuddled thought, "Now what the?" F- It required only a little light reading in adventure books, and almost no imagination, to envisage circumstances in which I would find myself caught in a tightening circle of hunger-emboldened wolves, staggering and shredding clothes under an onslaught of pincered fire ants, or dumbly transfixed by the sight of enlivened undergrowth advancing towards me like a torpedo through water. Before being bowled backwards by a sofa-sized boar with cold, beady eyes, a piercing squeal, and a slaverous, chomping appetite for pink, plump, city-softened flesh. Then there were all the diseases lurking in the woods: Giardia lamblia, Eastern equine encephalitis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Lyme disease, Helicobacter pylori, Ehrlichia typhinis. Schistosomiasis, brucellosis, and Shigella, to offer but a sampling. Eastern equine encephalitis, caused by the prick of a mosquito, attacks the brain and central nervous system. If you are very lucky, you can hope to spend the rest of your life propped in a chair with a bib round your neck, but generally it will kill you. There is no known cure. No less arresting is Lyme disease, which comes from the bite of a deer tick smaller than a pinhead. If undetected, it can lie dormant in the human body for years before erupting in a positive fiesta of maladies. This is a disease for the person who wants to experience it all. The symptoms begin with headaches, fatigue, fever, chills, shortness of breath, dizziness, and shooting pains in the extremities, 
Then march on to cardiac irregularities, facial paralysis, muscle spasms, severe mental impairment, loss of control of body functions, and, not surprising in the circumstances, chronic depression. Then there is the little-known family of organisms called hantaviruses, which swarm in the micro-haze above the feces of mice and rats, and are hoovered into the human respiratory system by anyone unlucky enough to stick a breathing orifice near them, by lying down, say, on a sleeping platform over which infected mice have recently scampered. In 1993, a single outbreak of hantavirus killed 32 people in the southwestern United States. And the following year, the disease claimed its first victim on the AT, when a hiker contracted it after sleeping in a rodent-infested shelter. All AT shelters are rodent-infested. Among viruses, only rabies, Ebola, and HIV are more certainly lethal. Again, there is no treatment. Finally, this being America, there is the constant possibility of murder. At least nine hikers, the actual number depends on which source you consult and how you define a hiker, have been murdered along the trail since 1974, Two young women would die while I was out there. For various practical reasons, principally to do with the long, punishing winters of northern New England, there are only so many available months to hike the trail each year. If you start at the northern end, at Mount Katahdin in Maine, you must wait for the snows to clear in late May or June. If, on the other hand, you start in Georgia and head north, you must time it to finish before mid-October when the snows blow back in. Most people hike from south to north with spring, ideally keeping one step ahead of the worst of the hot weather and the more irksome and infectious of insects. My intention was to start in the south in early March. I put aside six weeks for the first leg. The precise length of the Appalachian Trail is a matter of interesting uncertainty. The U.S. National Park Service which constantly distinguishes itself in a variety of alarming ways, manages in a single leaflet to give the length of the trail as 2,155 miles and 2,200 miles. The official Appalachian Trail Guides, a set of 11 books, each dealing with a particular state or section, variously give the length as 2,144 miles, 2,147 miles, 2,159 miles, and, quote, more than 2,150 miles, unquote. The Appalachian Trail Conference, the governing body, in 1993, put the trail length at exactly 2,146.7 miles, then changed for a couple of years to a hesitantly vague, quote, more than 2,150 miles, unquote but has recently returned to confident precision with a length of 2,160.2 miles. In 1993, three people rolled a measuring wheel along its entire length and came up with a distance of 2,164.9 miles. At about the same time, a careful measure based on a full set of U.S. geological survey maps put the distance at 2,118.3 miles. What is certain is that it is a long way, and from either end it is not easy. The peaks of the Appalachian Trail are not particularly formidable as mountains go. The highest, Clingman's Dome in Tennessee, tops out at a little under 6,700 feet. But they are big enough, 
and they go on and on. There are more than 350 peaks over 5,000 feet along the AT, and perhaps a thousand more in the vicinity. In a week, you can cross 50 Snowdens. Altogether, it takes about five months and five million steps to walk the trail from end to end. And, of course, on the AT, you must lug on your back everything you need. It may seem obvious, but it came as a small shock to me to realize that this wasn't going to be even remotely like an amble through the Lake District, where you head off for the day with a haversack containing a packed lunch and a copy of Wainwright, and at day's end retire from the hills to a convivial inn. Here you sleep out of doors and cook your own food. Few people manage to carry less than 40 pounds— and when you are hauling that kind of weight, believe me, never for a moment does it escape your notice. It is one thing to walk 2,000 miles, quite another to walk 2,000 miles with a wardrobe on your back. My first inkling of just how daunting an undertaking it was to be came when I went to our local outfitters, the Dartmouth Co-op, to purchase equipment. My son had just got an after-school job there, so I was under strict instructions of good behavior. Specifically, I was not to say or do anything stupid, try on anything that would require me to expose my stomach, say, are you shitting me, when informed of the price of a product, be conspicuously inattentive when a sales assistant was explaining the correct maintenance or aftercare of a product, and above all, not to don anything inappropriate like a woman's ski hat, in an attempt to amuse. I was told to ask for Dave Mengley, because he had walked large parts of the trail himself, and was something of an encyclopedia of outdoor knowledge, a kindly and deferential sort of fellow.